All right, church, go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, meet me in Genesis chapter 17, everybody's favorite chapter of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 17. But before we dive into the scriptures together, uh, I just want to take a moment. Uh, we, as a church, uh, are more than just um, a production where we all get together and we just read the Bible and sing songs like this. We believe that the church is primarily a family, and we have members of part of our family that are hurting, that are broken, that are frustrated, that are feeling wounded, feeling lost and confused. Uh, from the situation in Afghanistan to um, just the, 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 the ravages that COVID is happening in some of our, our family members. Not many of us are fresh out of the hospital. Some of us have diseases. Some of us are, have autoimmune conditions that prevent us from gathering us and are still gathering with us online. And we as a church family want to gather around them in prayer. And so church, I'm going to lead us in prayer over these things. I want to invite you as the church body, be praying for these things yourself throughout the week. Write these things down in your journal. Remember to pray for your church family. And so before we dive into the scriptures, I'm going to lead us in prayer again around these things. Lord Jesus, you alone are God. You alone are good. You alone are king. We pray against um, the wicked rule of many of these Taliban leaders in Afghanistan. We, get, we pray for peace among the people of Afghanistan. Um, God, we pray for the U.S. citizens, troops, and allies that we that would be able to get out safely. God, I, we pray for the churches and pastors and leaders that will face threat of death for their faith in Jesus and rejection of Islam. God, we pray for the soldiers who are struggling with massive sense of loss because of this situation we find ourselves in this country. God, we pray for wisdom, for clarity, and just action among the leadership in our government. God, we also pray for those, the many that are sick, that are isolated. God, I, pr I pray that we would allow us to live with each other in this country in an understanding way that seeks to love each other and our neighbor, and as we are called to by you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would continue to form us together as a church family that we would love one another above all else, that we'd be known by our love as Jesus says that we shall be, um, and that the world would know that we follow you, Jesus, by our outward love and expression of that love for each other within this church body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's some black hardback Bibles at the back of the room back there. Um, if you got one on the way in and you don't own a Bible, we would really love if you would consider taking that thing home, keeping it, claiming it as your own, consider that our gift to you. And so um, uh, we are going to be looking at Genesis 17, but I just want to tell you one more thing before we get started. Uh, tonight we're having a partner meeting. Partner meeting is happening at 5 p.m. Can't wait to see you there. I'm trying to say this as, as prophetically as possible. Bring your casserole dishes, your plates laden with brisket and hams and incredible foods that you're going to bring, or as Ryan's going to say later, later he's just, just wishing for a banquet of Bojangles, okay? Just like from one end of the table to the other. Um, but lay that stuff down. We're going to get after it and worship for a little bit. We'll have child care during that. You'll hear some exciting updates, and then we'll just party together as a church. It's high time that we just party together as a church for a little bit and, and hear what Jesus has for us. Um, Genesis chapter 17, if you're already there, there's a, there's a chapter heading before it, and um, probably says something like this, Abraham and the covenant of circumcision. So two quick things about that. One, yes, we are going there. I'm about to read this entire chapter. 
Um, some of you are going to feel a little uncomfortable when I say certain words in this chapter. Um, I, I would have spared you, but Moses didn't. So here we go. All right. And then another thing is, I'm not really, uh, <laughs> I'm not really envious of some of you that have some of your older children with you, and you're going to have to explain to them after this gathering what a foreskin is. And so, I'm sorry, you're going to have to have an awkward, awkward conversation at lunch today. Uh, but we believe the whole Bible that really is profitable for us and points us forward to the story of Jesus. We believe what Jesus said in John 5:39 that the Scriptures bear witness about Him. All of the scriptures bear witness about them. So without further ado and stalling, here we go, Genesis chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, it'll come up on the screens as well. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and, shall, and you shall be the father of the multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and you and your offspring after your, you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you and to your God, uh, uh, your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring forever after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. How are we doing, church? Still with me? All right, 
When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son and those born in his house, or bought with, with his money every male among him in Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house were born in the house, and those bought with his money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Welcome to church. (laughs) Didn't think you were getting that this morning, did you? See, the main point of this chapter, as best I can tell, is this. God requires a sanctified, believing life of those who walk in anticipation of the promise and enjoy rites of the covenant. In my studies this past week and the week before that, to be honest, (laughs) I've been reading this again and again and again, and uh, there's a commentary by a guy named Alan P. Ross, uh, no relation to our discipleship pastor, Ryan Ross, um, but he broke down the major movements of this passage like this into four main sections, and they'll come up on the screen. The first section is that God guarantees his promises of the covenant to his faithful people in those first eight verses. The second is that God demands that his people be set apart by the covenant in verses 9 through 14. Then further, God plans to fulfill his promises in ways that seem impossible, like it's through Sarah. She's barren. We already know this. And then four, God's goodness and his promises prompt believers to walk in obedience. That last section on on obedience there. See, before we spend time walking through and explaining and getting deeper into this text, I think we really need to answer the question first, that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, if you're coming here as a follower of Jesus, you need to answer the question, what do you do with a passage of Scripture like this? What do you do? What is the, your inward heart's reaction? I think, I think with most of us, when we get to passages about covenants and specific actions demanded by God for inclusion in that covenant— even just reading it, some of us are getting anxious. The type A's in the room are thinking, oh, uh-oh, I know, I, I believe the gospel. Do I, do I need to start adding some law? Do I need to start doing something? Do I need to start adding, do I need to start a- acting in th- these ways? What do I do with these direct orders from God? And then if you're more of like the go with the flow types, you're thinking, you know, well, well that's just the Old Testament. The Old Testament's just got a lot, it's a, basically a big list of rules anyway, so we we really don't really need it anyways. And so you might just subtly be communicating that we don't need the Old Testament. And you don't take sin seriously now that we're, you know, it's all grace under Jesus now. That can't be the, the, the case. Both of those perspectives lead us into places that we don't want to go. If we add law to the gospel, you have legalism. You've tried to justify yourself before God. It doesn't work. Or you go the other way, you have licentiousness, you, you presume on the grace of God, and you don't take sin seriously. So we're left, what do we do with this text? Here's what I think we should do. Before we dive deeply into this passage, we need to do an overview of what the Bible says about this topic, this uncomfortable topic of circumcision. What is this all really about? What is it pointing to? We're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible, Okay. We're going to let us inform our opinion on this. We're going to trace the significance of circumcision throughout the whole Bible, skipping through a couple passages, and then we're going to sit, once we have a grasp on that, 
we'll be able to look back at this text and see the eternal truths that we've already seen on the screen, see how those eternal truths, those eternal principles, um, we can see them on their own terms rather than being confused about what to do with the specific commandments given to Abraham. Okay? Sound good? Here we go. Well, for starters, just getting an understanding, you know, we're not uh, Near East people living in this region at this time, receiving the text when it wouldn't have been given, so we have no idea about the cultural practices of other people during this time. Well, it turns out, uh, biblical Bible scholar John Mead says that other cultures at this point in history had at least some practices or some expressions of circumcision, but one of the major distinctions was that this practice was reserved in those cultures for only the religious elites only for the kings, for the priests, the people in high positions. But among the Israelites, every male, no matter their status, was to be circumcised on the eighth day according to God's command. As far as I know, though, none of us in here are ethnically Jewish. There may be one or two of us, but most of us are not. So we can't, apples to apples, claim the promises of Yahweh to Abraham directly for ourselves. We're not a part of this line. But even the right of this covenant between God and the family of Abraham was ultimately meant to point beyond itself. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. It'll come up on the screens for us. And now, writes Moses, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God, and with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 16, he tells us, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Be no longer stubborn. Verse 19, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. So circumcision points not just as a physical act, as a religious act, Circumcision points beyond itself as an inward mark of spiritual distinction and devotion to God, not just an external one. Even Paul in the New Testament, Paul calls himself like the Jew of all Jew, like he is the absolute embodiment of what it means to be faithful to God up under the, uh, the, 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 the Jewish law. And he says this of circumcision in Galatians. Galatians 16, 15, he says this, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This sounds a little bit different than what God said back in Genesis Genesis 17. But Paul here is is doing and writing and saying, this is what circumcision is actually about. He really fleshes this out in in Colossians chapter 2. This will be the last one that we read before we jump back into the text. Colossians 2.11 says this, In him, in Christ, you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in a powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, of your hearts, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is linking for us not just an an outward act of religious obedience to God, 
given to Abraham, but he's saying that the eternal truth here is one that is an inward distinction that only God can do. Ultimately, this was a foreshadowing of the distinction that would only come through God's work in us, in our hearts, that he would change us by the power of the gospel. And it's a change that only he could bring about. It's an obedience that only he could produce in us. It was his work that would mark us inside and outside through our love and commitment to God and our love and sacrificial service to others. See, Moses and Paul and God all the way back in Genesis 17 as has a beautiful plan for this practice. And now we have an understanding of what circumcision was all, all about and what it's pointing to. Let's dive back into the text and see those eternal principles that God has on display for us. Okay, back at the beginning of our passage in Genesis 17, we have God calling the recipients of the covenant to be faithful. God literally, at the beginning of Genesis 17, he says this to Abraham. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you. Walk before me and be blameless. God literally calls Abram to walk perfectly and to be blameless. We've heard this language before in the book of Genesis so far. Remember back in the story with Noah. Noah says that he was blameless. God said that like that was, he had already achieved the status of blameless in his sight by God's love and affection being set upon him. And in this section though, God is calling Abraham to be blameless, to walk in it. To, to pursue it. This is a call of God for Abram to take sin seriously and to pursue holiness. Also, this language of walking before me doesn't mean just, hey, hey, hey Abe, come stand over here. Hey, come, come walk over here right now. That's not what he's asking him to do, not just to come stand before him. It's kind of like this. I don't know if you've seen Monty Python before, but it's the, those guys with the coconuts going before the king, Right? They're making fun of, a, of kind of a trope at the time. But if you were a devoted servant of a king, you would literally go before the king. You would parade before him, extolling the king's uh, virtues and extolling the king's power and his might and all the things that he had gotten right. That was your role. You were to go before him. You bore a banner or you announced his arrival. This is what God is commanding of Abram here. And you're probably thinking what I'm thinking, if you've been here for any length of time, God, this guy? Abram? I mean, come on. Like, it was a couple chapters ago, first he pimps out his wife to Pharaoh, and then he knocks up the servant girl to take matters into his own hand. The guy doesn't have a great record. And you want this guy to be the, the front runner, like parading before you? But look, let's look at how Abram responds. Look at verse three. This is how Abram responds before God. Abram fell on his face. Abram fell on his face. Up until this point in the book of Genesis, no one has shown this amount, this level of humility and posture of reverence before God. No one. God's appeared before people. He's talked to people. No one has fallen on their faces before God yet. This is a, a posture of humility and reverence towards God. See, worship in the ancient world included all kinds of spilling of blood, sacrifice, even human sacrifice. But Abram is the first person to throw his whole self before God in a, in a posture of humility. Just, if you're a follower of Jesus here, you need to be reminded 
maybe gently this morning, when was the last time you offered yourself before God? When was the last time you humbled yourself, maybe literally prostrating yourself before God, putting your face on the ground in awe and reverence of God in prayer? I know that, that, was, that came as a little bit of a shock to me this week, reading this passage, thinking like, even Abe is throwing himself before God, and I find it awkward or cumbersome to kneel before God or to put my face on the ground and pray before God. I've got the spirit of the living God living inside of me right now. I have the presence of God with me always. And it's sometimes hard for me to just bow my head in prayer and reverence. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can remember these sweet moments of true surrender. They're stored away in your memory. You remember that sweet abandon held in the mercy and the grace of God. See, the truth is God loves to meet us in those moments of repentance and surrender before him in those times of prayer. He loves to. Look at God's response to Abram. Verse 3, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. My covenant is with you. You shall, no, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. See, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. See, Abram's name already means exalted father, but that was in relation to his own father, not to himself. But God changes his name to mean father of many nations. So you know what that means? Every single time Abraham heard his name said out loud, do you know what he heard? Hello, father of many nations. Good morning, father of many nations. Have some bacon and eggs, father of many nations. Maybe not the bacon part, you know. Maybe not that. But he is promised, even beyond that, not father of many nations, even kings are going to come from him. How incredible would it be if every time you heard your name, you heard the promises of God spoken upon you, like literally in your name. What an incredible thing. See, in, in the Veritas Bible reading plan this week, uh, Pastor Josh and I were meeting up in, our, in my offices, and we were reading Mark chapter 3. And in Mark 3, Jesus does this with his disciples. He calls his disciples to him, and he renames some of them. He renames uh, Simon. He renames him Peter. He calls him the rock, Petros. He calls the, the, the twins, the, the brothers, he, he calls them James and John, the sons of thunder, which is just a really sweet, like, southern metal band name. I don't know if you guys are looking for one. Just use that one, sons of thunder. It's awesome. The act of naming God in Genesis 17 is a and Jesus in the New Testament is another kingly act. God shows his ultimate authority to re-identify us based on his promises for us. See, you may have picked up on it when God is reiterating the covenant as we read it. You shall, you shall, I will give you this. You shall be that. But there's one part where God really solidifies this, and it is in verse 5 again. Let's look at it again. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, your name shall be called Abraham. Look at this, underline this. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. God here doesn't just say, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. He says it's already happened. Even though it's not a lived reality for Abram, God speaks it, it will be so. Just like back in Genesis in the beginning when God speaks creation into existence, he speaks and it is so. Abram 
is Abraham, the father already of many nations. But Abram isn't the only one who gets a new name in the first few verses. Back in verse 1, God calls himself God Almighty, or El Shaddai. With this new name, God, and Abraham's new name and identity, he re reiterates the covenant and promises. But then, this section ends with demands that his people be set apart by the covenant. That every male is to be circumcised in the eighth day in accordance with God's command. See, after this, uh, I've already pointed out that uh, in other cultures that circumcision was a thing to a certain degree, right? But this practice existed only for the elites, only for the important people, only for the special people. But how like it is our God in the giving of this covenant to Abraham say that it's not just for Abraham. It's not just for the front runners. It's not just for the special people or the pastors or the leaders, the elites. He said this is for everyone. This is for everyone. It was for everyone in the family. This should inform our expectations for what we come to in Christ and what would come through Christ. See, the work of Jesus and through the work of Jesus, we are brought into the family of God. And every single one of us are all marked, sealed, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by, given by Jesus himself. This is why Paul would write in Romans 2 these verses. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. This incredible good news is absolutely just that. Good news for everyone. Everyone can get on, in on this because of what Jesus has done. But this bad news uh, that comes along with this good news as well, look down at verse 14 of chapter 17 of Genesis. Verse 14 says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So just as the rite of the covenant was for everyone of God's, uh, in, in God's covenant family, salvation is for all who would believe in Jesus. The Bible defines a fool, though, not as someone who's ignorant and doesn't know something that he should know. The Bible defines a fool as someone who decides not to act on something he does know. Having a knowledge of that thing, but choosing not to act. Again, we read in Mark 3, Mark 3.28 this week, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven of the children of man. We can all get in on this. Every sin. Whatever blasphemes they utter, they can all be forgiven. But Jesus says this, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is a matter of the heart. Circumcision is a matter of of the heart. I used to think this passage uh, in, in Mark chapter 3 was some kind of random sin that if I accidentally did it, I was like kicked out of the club and sent that straight to hell or something. That, that could be nothing further from the truth. See, the only way to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the gospel of Jesus. It's to be the fool who knows the truths of God yet chooses not to act upon them in belief. To throw themselves upon the mercies of God offered in the gospel of Jesus. I want to warn you, if, if, if that's you, if you've rejected the grace of Jesus, you are guilty of an eternal sin. 
Here's the good news. It's just as fast, just as quick. The moment you repent and believe in the good news of the gospel, you are eternally safe. Eternally. Eternally marked. Eternally sealed. Eternally given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you forever. Eternally adopted into the family of God. Eternally sealed forever and kept by the promises of Jesus. This mark is for you. You believe on the promises of God. And all of this is because God plans to fulfill his promises in ways that seem impossible to us. Verses 15 through 22 of this section, God pledges to bring about his promise, specifically through Abram's wife, Sarai. God tells Abraham four huge things that he had to go take home and tell his wife afterwards. I don't know if you picked it up so far, but like, she's not there at this. He's receiving a vision or something, and like, he's got to go home and report this stuff. The first thing is, hey, honey, uh, you got a new name. <laughs> and if that wasn't better, he's like, okay, I'm not going to call you Sarai anymore. Your name is Sarah. Good thing they both mean princess, though, right? So that's like a, that's a good thing for both of him, right? So every time he calls his wife, he calls her princess. That's just cute, you know? Her name's Sarah now, though. The second thing God gives her is, hey, Sarah, also, you're going to have a son. Knowing that she's 99 years old, or 90 years old. You're going to have a son, babe. And so the next thing is, hey, I've already named the baby. So he's just, just racking up accolades right now. He's going to have a really good time when he gets home to tell Sarah all this stuff. And then finally, the baby's going to be born in like a year from now. So he's already got the timeline already sketched out. I mean, without God, I know God's dictating all this stuff, but he's got to tell his wife all these things. See, the reason, though, that God names the child Isaac is because of the scene here where how Abraham responds to this news. See, the text doesn't seem to suggest that Abraham's laughing at this point is anything bad or seen negatively in the eyes of God. It seems like this laughter is like one of those it's-too-good-to-be-true kind of laughter. Like if Ryan got here later for the partner night and the whole table was that banquet of Bojangles, right? The whole thing, it's just too good to be true. He's going to laugh. He's going to just kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. It's that kind of laughter that we see Abraham doing here. Because in Abraham's mind, Ishmael's already around. He already has a son. Why not make him the heir of the promise? You see, God is committed to another plan, a better way. God is committed to a way where he's going to bring about his covenant promises through supernatural means. He's going to bring a child He's going to provide the birth of a miraculous baby of whom God will make his covenant with eternally and forever. That story is starting to sound familiar and leading you to think about another story. It's because it should. Many years later, an angel would appear before a young girl and tell her that she would soon bear a miraculous son. That angel would then say that it was through that son all the promises of God would be fulfilled. And the hopes of the whole world would hang on this baby boy, and his name would be Jesus. See, throughout the whole Bible, we see that God is in the business of seeing his promises fulfilled in ways that seem to us utterly impossible. But then this conversation between God and now Abraham just ends. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. This is the end of their conversation. This is the end of the appearing of God before Abraham. 
And you know that moment where your parents walk out the door when maybe you were, you were in middle school, high school for the first time, you're being left alone, and they drive down the drive, and they're gone. Now you, can, you have a choice. You can do what your parents just told you to do, or you could do something else and completely disregard it and just have that house party anyways, kind of like in the movies or whatever. We have Abram set in this moment, stuck in a moment like this, and we're left to wonder for a moment at least, what's he going to do? Like, this is a tall order, y'all. Like, circumcision, not just for himself. This guy's 100 years old. What if this kills him? Like, he has to convince everybody in his whole crew to go through with this. This is a really tall order. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, there's a rank very high on the top things to do at the family reunion. Like, now everybody's here. No. See, Abraham, the father of nations, though, he doesn't skip a beat. He lives up to the new identity that God has already put on him. Verse 23 and verse 26 reiterates this. That very day. His obedience was that immediate. He obeys the command of God. Now, the cynical person in me asked the question, why did he do this? Like, what motivated him? Not to mention, like, how in the world did he convince everybody else to do this? See, there's only one explanation. Abraham actually trusted God. Abraham believed and trusted that the promises of God and God himself were that good. He believed that God was that good. He believed the promises were that good. And the goodness of God and the promises of God are to prompt us as believers to walk in obedience. We really are to believe that God really is that good. That the good news of the gospel really is that good to give our entire lives for, to sacrifice for, to lay down our lives so that others could live for. Belief that God really is that trustworthy, he really is that mighty, God really is that holy, should propel us towards obedience, especially when it's hard. See, as followers of Jesus, there are ways in which our walk with Jesus and obedience to him is just going to be hard. See, Jesus summarizes the greatest commandments that we're to walk into as loving God and loving others. It's our church mission statement. Love God, love people, advance the gospel. You hear one of us say it every single Sunday right before you leave. See, the ways that it's hard are specific to some of us, though. Why don't, it, maybe it's giving up other competing loves in that kind of hierarchy of love between God and other things. Maybe there's some things you love achievement more than you love God. Or maybe you love feeling a certain feeling by consuming a certain something more than God. Maybe you love something that's sinful more than God. Maybe it's just submitting to him alone that's hard for you. You really want to submit to the gods of all of social media and all opinions out there in the world, and God too. They're a part of the equation. Or maybe it's loving others that's hard for you. Maybe it's killing your pride. Maybe it's seeing others as, as worthy of dignity and respect. Or maybe it's valuing others enough to give them your attention and your time without outright sinning against them. It's hard to be obedient to God. But again, we are to be reminded it's the goodness of God and his promises that are to prompt us as followers of Jesus to walk in obedience. Church, God really is that good. 
God really does have our best intentions in mind. See, the good news that we need to hear today is that through Christ, God guarantees his promises to uh, promises of the new covenant by giving us a new name, a new identity, by knowing him, not just as God Almighty, but God our Father, giving us a new sign. And the signs that we're given now are not means by which we are to be kept into the family, but a gracious reminder of our eternal, unchanging, unshakable status as sons and daughters. See, we've been given the gracious reminders, the Lord's table and baptism. We're about to do that together in just a couple of minutes. We're going to remember the bread and the cup. See, we're going to remember these things together. I'm going to invite the band to join me on stage. And we're going to remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus in Matthew 26 he says this, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, every one of you, be marked by this, remember this, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you're, you're here today and your walk with Jesus just feels like an absolute slog. You feels like it's like two steps forward, four steps back. And your walk with followers as a follower of Jesus, maybe you, most days you don't feel like a child of God. You're just lucky if you get through the day without feeling like a total loser. Look, I've been there, had those days. I've had those days in the past couple weeks. Every one of us come here needy for something. We need to be reminded. We're looking for hope. We're looking for friendship. We're looking for forgiveness. We're looking for uh, something to, to give our lives towards. I think this is a very good reason for us to identify ourselves and others in the terms that God bestows upon us. Here, if you're a follower of Jesus, this morning, you need to be reminded. The identity that you bear this morning is not that of your sin. You're not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your former life. You're not defined by the things that used to bog you down. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a child of God. You are an adopted son or daughter. You are a co-heir with Christ. You are the beloved of God. You are worthy of the death of Jesus. Do you not remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe on him would be saved. That's you. That's you that he died for. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is our identity. These words, these things should shape our identity as Christ followers and change the way we see ourselves and others. As we prepare to come to the table today, I pray we would come with hearts just fit to burst with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Church, let me pray. God, I thank you for what you have done and the goodness of your gospel. God, I pray that it would fill us with such gratitude, such love and affection for you. We would see the goodness of your promises, the goodness of your own character, God, and be so motivated to walk not only in obedience, just in joyful praise of you, God. God, I pray that as we come to the table now, 
we would come with that identity in mind as beloved sons, as children of you, God, as co-heirs with Christ. And that, God, as we come to this table, we would do so with hearts filled with joy for what you've done for us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.